The Song of Solomon, a fun book for some. A challenging book for others. It is more interesting and perhaps more mysterious than any book in the Bible. And um, it's, it's an interesting case study to go back and we'll try to cover a lot of high level stuff before we look at just a few verses this morning. But I want to talk about the title for a few minutes because it is complicated. Uh, the word Song of Songs or Song of Solomon might be what you have in your, uh, in your front piece of your Bible. Um, and during this big book, cover to cover, as we go through each book of the Bible, one Sunday at a time, my challenge has been, what do you need, what do I need, as opposed to just flying over and, 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 and then backing up and looking at the whole, because we can get lost in the details, which are fun, but I want us to have this bigger, comprehensive picture of the book, um, and so... What do we need? And unfortunately, or fortunately, I want to spend a little time on the title because it is a little cumbersome. How many of us grew up Catholic? I grew up Catholic. Uh, it was called what in the Catholic Bible? Canticles. Uh, some of your Bibles will say Song of Solomon. Some will say Song of Songs. And part of that is the language that's used. Um, Hebrew is transliterated, different than translated, on the, the line there that says Shir Ha-Shirim, Hir Ha-Shirim. And I just want to show you the Shir is twice embedded there. So this is the song, song, I am ending in Hebrew, can mean plurality or many or great, Elohim, Goyim, that I am ending is like more than one or a great number. So this is the song of, song. this is the best way I would say it's like caps, the song of songs. There's nothing like it. And so the way the Hebrew is entitled uh, gives us that tell, if you will. One of the big questions, and it's not a small issue, is this written by Solomon or for Solomon? Because if you read that first line in your uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 1-1, it's the Song of Songs for Solomon or to Solomon, and it's impossible to know, frankly. Both would work. It doesn't matter from attribution standpoint. But what does matter is then how people interpret this and how they apply this rather complex, mysterious, and somewhat uncomfortable book. Um, perhaps the most obvious thing that's missed is it is a song, which means... It was supposed to be sung. And most of us are off. We get derailed with the piece of literature because of its, you know, challenges. And we go, this was a song, which is why canticles is an interesting word that the Catholics chose to name the book. And so all these different attempts to name the book, not to get lost in the, in the weeds of it, but uh, I would just say at the highest level, this is, a, this is an, a superlative. This is the song of songs. It was meant to be sung and in that regard, it was uh, a part of a festival. Now, Chrissy talked about poetry literature. We, we've talked about wisdom and poetry the last few times. And you can look at the subset of books as wisdom literature versus poetry, which would include psalms. Psalms do contain wisdom, but we think more of Ecclesiastes and uh, Proverbs as corpus of wisdom. And, but all of them, not to get too fine a point on it, but it's a body of literature. We're not doing the history anymore. We're not listening to the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the kings, and the divided kingdom, and all the, the period of judges. We're beyond that, and we're looking at this unique corpus of literature, this body of literature that, that transcends time and history. But it's written in these contexts, and that's one of the things to keep in mind. Any of you from a Jewish background? I don't think we've... Fantastic. I didn't know that. Um, the, the Jew, of course, Phil, forgive me. <laughs> 
I repent, I repent. Uh, so uh, the Jewish festivals have a thing called Megillah or Megaloth, if it's pronounced correctly, Megaloth. And there were five festivals that were tied to books of the Bible. So the Song of Solomon was read at Passover, which is interesting. Ruth was read, read during the Feast of Weeks. Jeremiah or Lamentations uh, was read during the uh, anniversary of the destruction of the, the Babylonian conquest of the temple complex. Ecclesiastes is read during the Feast of Tabernacles. And Esther was read during the Feast of Purim, which we talked about. So they looked at this. You might think of, I don't know what you do at Thanksgiving. I go back and read proclamations to different presidents. That's one of my weird things. I like to go back and read what Lincoln and people wrote about Thanksgiving because we're forgetting all that. Well, the way the Jew instilled this in their, in their families was with these festivals, they would look at these books. And uh, I don't think it's a far cry to say these were sung in the main. This was part of a festival of songs. We think of it as a concert maybe. The book can be looked at allegorically. It can be looked at as a drama. Um, and part of that is, is dealing with the uncomfortable nature of some of the very explicit language in the book uh, because it lacks a certain continuity. Our Western brains read something, and we expect it to be organized. We don't even know this is happening, but the way we're educated, the way we read English, we come to something, and we, if, if it doesn't make sense, you know, when you, when you read social media posts, they're terrible grammar, it's terrible grammar and, you know, terrible language and everything's, you know, IDK and whatever. I mean, it's, it's a whole, you know, foul ball of language. But to understand social media, you've got to have a mindset for it. You show a text or a tweet to your grandma or grandpa, they don't know what the heck it's talking about. When you read a piece of literature, your Western mind is kind of looking for home plate, if you will. And when you read this, this section of literature, it's really hard to organize because there, there's two characters, there's three characters. Is it a drama? Is it a play? Is it a song? And there are no simple answers to this. Some believe it's an anthology. It's a collection. But that breaks down real quickly. The Jews believed it was, because of the language, it was a picture of God's love for his chosen people, Israel. That's how they teach it to this day if they teach it at all. It's the Jew, God's love, Yahweh Elohim, for his wayward uh, she people, Israel. The Catholics believed it was a picture of God's love for the church. And they still teach that uh, pretty much. The Protestants came along later and said, wait a minute, let's look at the language for what the language is. And of course, they would say, no, this is, this is more than just this allegorical God's love for Israel or Christ's love for his church. There's a lot more here. Um, as we noted in the organization of Psalms and Proverbs, you can't put a, a neat saran wrap on it. And one of the parts of wisdom literature is um, think of psalms, praise, lament, thanksgiving, petition, worship, all these different categories of psalms. Proverbs is a list of, let's just say, principles that are eternally true. It's wit and witticism easily remembered. Ecclesiastes is sort of the stuff of life, how you manage life and its absurdity, life and its futility, life and its vanity, and as we learned last week, enjoy the good stuff of life. Enjoy what God has given you. That's, that's man's condition. And now Song of Solomon is a, a heightened sexual book. And so as you start looking at this body of literature, it makes a lot of sense in the phrase you've heard that Scripture is sufficient for all life and godliness. 
That's a good thing to remember. Scripture is sufficient for all life and godliness. It doesn't teach you how to uh, rebuild your lawnmower or rebuild your piano or uh, how to play a particular instrument. But it's sufficient for all you need in life and godliness. Um, as a sidebar, I want to review this. We've talked about it, I think, twice now, um, and this will be forthcoming. But um, in, in Stonebridge Bible Church, to me, the foundation of how this church begins, uh, you, you've seen church doctrinal statements, tr- statements of faith. Uh, we are working on that. We're gonna, we've taken our time intentionally, and uh, we're, we're being very uh, open to the sense of what's God want to do with Stonebridge Bible Church, what we intend to be based on and built on. And I just want to read this because this will be pretty much the language that you'll see when that document comes out probably by the first of the year. The teaching of and foundation of Stonebridge Bible Church is based on the Scripture. And that may seem like a duh statement, but it's woefully lacking in the church today. Woefully lacking. This statement of faith reflects doctrines that are essential to understand, teach, and practice God's Word. We approach the interpretation of the Bible. Now that, that word hermeneutics may sound big, but it's really not. It's how you begin looking at something. It's your presupposition, if you will. How do you approach this? If you're in the medical world, you're looking at diagnostics. You're trying to figure out what's wrong with the patient. What's the proper treatment? If you're an engineer, there's a, as a product you need to build, how do I get to make this so that the musician, will, it'll work for him or her? So there's a beginning. So the hermeneutic is the way you approach something. And the way we approach the Bible is these five words, normal, grammatical, literal, historic, and theological. Now, let's look at those words very quickly. I don't want to get bogged down in this, but it's important, I think, and we look at Song of Solomon as this unique piece of literature, how we understand it. And this is a good time to remind you, and maybe new to you, that's okay, of how we land on this way of interpreting the Bible. Number one, normal. Common sense. When you read something in the language of the New Testament, it should be normal literature. We're not straining to get a meaning. We're not having to kill ourselves to understand it. Grammatical. There are rules of grammar. Just be honest. Be, be courageous. How many of you hate grammar? Just raise your hand with pride. I hated grammar all my elementary, high school, until college. And then I finally had a really good professor who knew how to teach it. The nuns and the priests beat it into me, the fear of God. But I didn't learn it until I got to college and someone helped me understand it. Grammar sounds so boring and so dry and dusty. Uh, basic grammar structure is critical to reading the Bible. Um, there's a side sidebar, uh, and I'm not bashing translations, but I do have pet peeves. Um, the loss of the divine pronoun, you, yours, I, me, mine, when it refers to God, uh, ESV, uh, and I, they, they'll drop the divine pronoun. I have a friend who sits on the ESV translation committee. I've known him before the, the, the ESV was revised from the RSV. I, I preached out of the ESV for a year, and then I had to quit because it was so confusing. Because when you drop the divine pronoun, in narrative literature, not so much. But in Psalms and Proverbs and these books, it's really hard. Who's the he? Is that the referent before antecedent or the one that follows? Who's the you and yours? And in the Psalms, if you take that divine pronoun away, good luck reading it in the English Bible. I need help. It's sort of the red-letter version of the New Testament. It's really nice, whether you care for it or not, to know, oh, those are, that's when Jesus is speaking. 
It's not that it means more. It just alerts the reader, oh, this, these are Christ's words that are quoted. So the divine pronoun to me is important, and one of the reasons I'm a stickler for NASB, I imagine one day they'll drop it as well. But the grammar, I want to make grammar easier, not harder. So when we approach the Bible, you'll hear me or others who teach from this platform talk about grammar as it occurs because that lends to meaning. Literal, of course, when the Bible uses a term in the ordinary sense, that's how we understand it, unless, of course, the context requires figurative interpretation. Your eyes are like two doves. Your neck is like the Tower of Lebanon. No, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. I mean, I guess a big schnoz was sexy in the Old Testament. I don't know. Uh, that's not literal. That's not literal. Uh, so it's obvious to the reader. So otherwise, we look at it literally. Historical. And this is, again, so important because we get in trouble. And you've heard me say it a million times. You've got to look at the context which is written to the audience to whom it was intended and what we can know about the time. We can't know everything, but we can know a lot. And so that begins, especially with a book like this, that's important as we look at this curious book about sexual intimacy. Why in the world is it even the Bible? Um, history is a boring subject for most people because unfortunately we had some boring history teachers. History is current events of another day. And we all like current events. So I was talking to someone in the back that their spouse was still at home watching President Trump's announcement about taking out this uh, recent ISIS guy. Uh, we like news. We like to hear new things. Nothing wrong with that. History is just looking at old things that were new then. But it's hard when we're removed from so much time. And we've gotten lazy with history. Um, I actually tried it as an experiment. I'm not an iPhone person I pray for the rest of you who are. But um, you can say, okay, Siri, what does the Song of Solomon mean? And you'll get some interesting information. I said, hey, Google, what does Song of Solomon mean? And it read the first few lines of Wiki, which I thought was cheating. Um, but it's lazy. I don't have to read. Uh, I'm listening to a bunch of uh, lectures right now on Augustine. And there's, I won't bore you with why. But these are, these are professors that have spent their lifetime becoming a subject matter expert in Augustinian theology. And I'm going, oh, that's why then when the reformers came along, these were big issues. We don't teach us. I dare say if your child's in a public or private school in junior high or middle school, ask them the three branches of government, see if they can answer it. If we're failing at that level, we're really failing at this level. So the historical part of it is very important. And then finally, theological. And this is the consistent consideration of the whole. So we're looking at, is this taught throughout the Bible? Um, acquaintance, not a close friend, but an acquaintance of mine, Bruce Wilkinson, wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez, made millions of dollars on it, took the country by storm. I heard the first time he preached it on a cassette tape was very different than the product that he put in the book. The cassette tape was great. But by the time it was preached, however many times before he preached, uh, wrote it, and then popularized in the book and edited, it, it really became false teaching. But people took it lock, stock, and barrel. And the danger of doing that is isolated theology. He took the prayer, took the four Hebrew verbs, and built the whole system out of it. Well, how else are those terms used throughout the Bible. That's where we get theology. Theology is looking at consistency. And he would have known uh, 
blessing does not necessarily mean prosperity and land and flocks and herds all the time. There's more to blessing. In fact, I argue blessing is when the believer comes to his or her senses and blesses God for what we have and accomplish, not what he gives us. Oh, I'm blessed to have this house. No, thank you, God, that you enabled me to work and have a job and make money and purchase this house and pay cash for it and be out of debt. And the blessing is to God, not what we are the beneficiaries of. And that's all that to say, the, theology, all this really, these are the guardrails that keep you from the false theological ditch. So that'll be in the preface of our thing. All that sidebar, just to remind you, uh, before we jump into the Song of Solomon proper. Dr. Dwayne Garrett. Um, some of you are BSF precept, uh, uh, community Bible studies, or just Bible nerds, and uh, you like to buy a few books. You need a single-volume commentary, a single-volume handbook of theology. You need, of course, a good Bible, and uh, you probably need a concordance. All this now is on your computer. Much of it you can access free. Uh, if you want books, I can give you book titles. But uh, I have several single-volume uh, Bible commentaries. I don't want to know the, every verse and every verb, syntax, every Greek word. Sometimes I want the big picture. So Dwayne Garrett, in his Holman Bible commentary right here in Nashville, it's, it's a compilation. It's about that big, or online, of course. And he gave this incredible synthesis. And so essentially I'm... I'm editing it quite a bit, but this is his meaning and message, and I have most of this on the screen. So the meaning and message of the Song of Solomon. One reason for the rise of the allegorical interpretation of the song is that many felt that a simple love song had no place in the Bible, and that unless it was allegorized, no theological message could be found in it. This concern, however, is misguided, he writes. Song of Songs conveys important meaning if left as it is, a love song, and not turned into something it is not. First, he says, the Bible is meant to serve as a guide in every aspect of life. So for Solomon, one of the universal aspects of human life, love, marriage, and sexuality. And people need direction in these matters. Second, the song also teaches by example and not decree. It's this is how it's done, not just this is how you love. This is a person telling of their love, not by decree only, but by example. The love the couple share was exclusive and binding, chapter 7, verse 10. And this, of course, gives a problem to the fact that Solomon had more than one wife. He had a bunch of wives and a bunch of concubines, a thousand total by my count, uh, give or take, I'm per, I presume. Uh, so how can that guy write this book? That's a valid question. But watch what Garrett continues to say. The love the couple shared was exclusive and binding. God's intent didn't change, no matter about the practice of people. Third, the Song of Songs celebrates love between man and woman as something that is valid and beautiful, even in a fallen and sinful world. Very well said. We're broken people. We're sinful people. We're selfish people. This shows up in sexual intimacy in spades. How we approach sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is, I mean, you know, men are from Mars, women from Venus is an understatement. We look at this very differently. And so this book is a refreshing biblical guide to how to don't let the world teach me theology about love, sex, and marriage. Let Scripture inform me to that end. Um, fourth, the song is unlike any ancient Near East, A&E is ancient Near East counterpart. In one significant respect, it does not turn 
sexuality into a sacred ritual. As far back as the Old Testament, don't be involved with these other people groups around you because it will lead you into immorality. Don't intermarry with those people, not because they were evil or bad people. It will pull you into their idolatrous system. It will pull you into their immoral systems. Um, for those of us going to Greece in, uh, in, in next May, we'll go to uh, Corinth, and you'll see the um, Asherah, uh, and basically they were ancient pornography. That's what they were. And they made these images, depending on how much money you had to spend, out of wood or, in some cases, beautiful marble and granite. Some look like ivory. They're so beautiful, almost pure white statues. And this imagery was part of the Canaanite fertility cult. The story of uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. Uh, Baal was the fertility god, and his semen fertilize the land. That's why Mount Carmel is, is this lush, beautiful area to the Canaanite mindset. So sexuality in the ancient Near East was viewed as a religious thing, and promiscuity, of course, was, that was no big deal. The Song of Solomon is unique in that respect of all ancient Near Eastern literature, which to me is like very interesting, because all the other books of the day talked about sexuality in an immoral way compared to God's standard. So it's refreshing in that way. He concludes in this way, the Bible avoids two pitfalls of human religion. It neither condemns sexual love as innately evil and dangerous, as do legalistic cults, nor elevates to the status of religious act, as do sensual cults and religions. The Song of Songs, therefore, should be taken as it stands. It is a song of love and an affirmation of the value of the bond between a man and a woman. In this way, it adds greatly to our appreciation of God's creation. Um, let me jump to an outline. And these are, again, I give them to you sort of open-handed in pencil form. This is a challenging book to outline. And just be upfront with you, it's not that we had to figure all this stuff out, but it gives us a way for our Western brain to find home plate. Jackie Deere comes up with a simple statement, the purpose of the book is to extol human love and marriage. Pretty good. That's the cookies on the lower shelf. That's the purpose of the book, The Song of Solomon. Taking a, a, some cues from him, he outlines it with these five points. Courtship, wedding, maturing in marriage, um, the nature of love, if you will, and then an epilogue. And again, these aren't hard and fast. It's just a way for our Western brain. I have written these on the front page of Song of Solomon in my Bible, Romans 1 through 5, with the verses just so I have that landing plate when my brain goes to how do I read this book and what do I expect. If we view it as an anthology, as a collection of love songs and love poems, which is fine, uh, it, it, it's, it leaves us with this, well, is the book unified? I think it's the wrong question. Poetry, prosaic, artistic songs aren't held to the same, if you will, criteria grammatically as, say, the Book of Romans or the Chronicles, where there's a sequential issue or a building of an argument. And so we're, for those of you who are you know, artistic, you, you love the, pose, the, the prosaic types of literature. You love Psalms. You love the songs in the Scripture. You love even the New Testament songs, where Paul will have a song he'll write in Philippians, for example. And so our right brain, left brain sometimes comes into how we look at these things. Um, some of the themes and characters are uh, pretty simple to see. Beloved, maiden, lover, daughters of Jerusalem, 
uh, a, a number of figures of speech that are comical to us if we don't understand a little bit about the time. Your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Uh, fragrance and perfume is a big part of the book of Song of Solomon's, which, by the way, you're getting a picture of senses. We're going to read some passages to talk about eye, ears, and nose, because there's a sensorial thing that's going on in romantic love. Um, the lover's eyes, cheeks, teeth, lips, neck, uh, the focus on a facial feature seems kind of silly in some ways, and something I had never seen until this past week. The word garden. Now, I'd seen the word garden, but I hadn't done any homework on it. It occurs eight times in the Song of Solomon. It occurs 14 in Genesis. 13 of the 14 refer to what? The Garden of Eden. The 14th time is used later on in Genesis 10. When, uh, remember when Lot and, um, uh, a, a, uh, Lot and uh, separate. Help me out. Abraham and Lot have to separate because the flocks and herds have gotten so big. And Abraham says, where do you, you want to go? And Lot chooses the Jordan, because it's, it's, it's full of, let me read it, I'm, I'm fumbling here. Um, he saw the valley of Jordan, it was well watered everywhere. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. I mean, look left and look right, that's desert over there, that's fertile and water and lush, I'll go there. And this isn't a hard question. The garden imagery, which I'd never seen before, think about the parallel. Love goes back to the garden. The first man, the first woman, with no sin, the way God designed and intended it. Uh, those of you who have been to Israel, when we go to En Gedi, or Ein Gedi, the spring of the wild goat, and you're down toward the Dead Sea, and it's, as far as you can see, it's desert and you know, dry and humid, and your, your skin gets all dried out, and you hike up to the, uh, to, there's actually three different falls. Typically, we don't go all the way to the last one. But you go to En Gedi, and you go to the spring, the main spring, and it's almost like um, one of these uh, aviaries you see in the zoo, where the water's coming down, and there's a microcosm of wildlife there. All these birds and finches and moss and flowers year-round. And so if you're in the desert and you're hiking and you're thirsty, there's only a couple places to get fresh water. Spring of Mangetti was a place you could always get water because springs don't move. So Ruth and, Moab, uh, Ruth and Naomi, I would bet all I know, they stopped it in Getty. Jesus probably stopped it in Getty. We have the life of David talking about in Getty. And it may very well be that this is written from or about in Getty. Because a lot of the Judean wilderness is not full of springs and beauty and perfumes. It's dry, it's desert, it's parched, and there's cistern water, nothing like the garden. So this garden imagery is quite fascinating to me. Now, if Scripture is sufficient for all life and godliness, let me ask you a series of duh questions. Is God concerned about your salvation and mine? Is He concerned about our sanctification? Is He concerned about uh, how I raise my kids and grandkids? Is he concerned about your money? Hugely concerned about your money. Is he concerned about your work? Is he concerned about your health? Now, of course, we're fallen people in a fallen system, so we get sick and we eventually die. A cheery Michael Easley sermon. But is he concerned about it? Yes. Is he concerned about our prayer life? Yes. Is he concerned about his bride, the church? Yes. Is he concerned about filling in the blank with anything you're concerned about? Do you think he's concerned about these things in your life? Very simple question. Then why would it come as a surprise that God is concerned about your sexual intimacy in marriage? 
You know, it's, it's not as though God's, you know, he, he says, oh, they're at it again. <laughs> he created this thing. It's from God. It's a gift of God. But the world has soiled it beyond repair in some respects. And of course, if we're single, if we're divorced, if we're not married, if we're widow, widowered, it's a hard part of life. But that doesn't take away from the gift that God gave a husband and wife in this intimacy relationship. Um, perhaps one of the most beautiful parts of Genesis. I don't think I've ever done a wedding without reading this passage in Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And many cynics have said, and he's been sleeping ever since. <laughs> then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. The word fashion is unique in Genesis. The best illustration, it's a hand and glove fit. She was not made from Adam, A-D-M, which he was made from. All the animals were made out of the ground. You read in Genesis 1, out of the ground, out of the ground, out of the ground. That's the word Adam. Earth is Eretz, but the ground is Adam. They're all made from dirt. This one's made from flesh and bone. On his side, the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Why does the father give the bride away? Because it's in a Western tradition book that the father walks down the aisle and the preacher, minister, pastor says, who then gives this woman to be married to this man? And it used to be, I do, but we're in a politically correct culture. Her mother and I, or in some you know, iteration of that, depending on the broken systems we come from. And so this presentation then, and in most wedding services, if, they're, if they put thought to it, the wedding party moves forward. This is called the Declaration of Intent. And the pastor says to the couple, is it your intent before God and these witnesses to pledge yourself as husband and wife? And typically the guy murmurs something, uh, and the girl says yes. And so and then that's when you ask, who gives this woman to marry this man? And the father says, and if I officiate the wedding, I say, do me a favor. Say, I do, real loud. Not her mother and I say, I do. I mean, if it's an intact family, etc., you know, there's all these issues. But I do, and I'll explain why in the message. And so generally they comply. And so I do. Why do we do that? Because God presents the woman to the man. It's not some Western marriage book. It's not an ancient tradition. It's a reenactment of the garden. That he's presenting this woman to him. And then, of course, his response is overwhelming in the Hebrew and in the English, if you look at it with some attention. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This one isn't from Adam. She wasn't made out of the dirt and breath breathed into her. I was asleep and I woke up and there she was. And she was fashioned like a hand in glove. Don't miss the physical nature of this. Duh, it's not that difficult to see. It's a hand-in-glove relationship. She's like me. She's not like the animal kingdom. She's also an image bearer of God. Oh, by the way, God fashioned her not like the dirt and to make her into a, a woman out of a sand woman. And so here you go. Here's your wife. The presentation is a beautiful depiction of God's love for Adam. This is how much I love you. I'm going to make you the perfect complementary mate who's different than you. And by the world, wait, by the world vilifies the idea of helper and submission, and they get all upset about, I'm not a helper, I'm not submissive to my husband. You're missing the whole point. Man needs help. 
The psalmist says, I appeal to God for times of help. Is God a doormat? Is God a, oh, come help me because I'm in trouble? No, God has something we don't have, so we go to God for help. So when he made her, made her a helpmeet, it wasn't to fetch his clothes and do his laundry and make him dinner and, and take care of his kids. That's, that's a distortion of the role. A helper was someone to help you through this life. The whole thing of submission is, again, taken out. It's completely destroyed in context. And what God is saying, I've designed this thing, and Adam realizes in Hebrew is, is uh, he's ish, and she's ma'ish. So it's ish, ma'ish. This one, she's not like anyone else. She's not like all these animals. She's not even like me. But she's from me. Ma'ish, she's taken from my side. This one, it's the most beautiful part of Genesis 2. For this reason, God enters the commentary. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined, or King's English, glued, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. There's only one person on the planet with whom you can be naked and have no shame, and that's your husband or wife, even in a fallen context. So that was God's design. Now, I want to look at two cryptic passages in uh, Song of Solomon, and then one final comment, and we're done. So these are a little bit long, but I'll read them and make a little running commentary as we go through them. The first one is how Solomon describes his wife-to-be, and again, because of sequencing, it could be his bride by this point, but it's a poem. It's a song. Keep that in mind. So he's talking about her. Chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes, notice the body parts he talks about. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. And the metaphor breaks down a little bit. That doesn't sound real appealing. I mean, I've seen goats in Israel, and they don't look like, oh, that's cool-looking hair. They look nasty and stinky and whatever. No, what's the metaphor? They're flowing. And when you go to Israel, you'll see these sure-footed animals come down in a flock seamlessly, and at a distance, that'd be pretty to watch. It's like when you see wheat that's, you know, it's not been yet harvested, and it's, it's, its color is golden and blown by the wind. It's a, it's a metaphor. That's why I went to the literal, grammatical, hermeneutical approach to understand some of this. So it's like your hair is like a flock of goats. He's not making fun of her. That have come down the mountain. It's, it's wavy. It's beautiful. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes, which have come up from their washing, which all bear twins. I guess she had all her teeth. And they were white, which, by the way, uh, white teeth in antiquity is rare. It's very rare. Uh, we're obsessed with it, but they weren't. Um, not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all, around, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies the, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. I will go uh, my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. 
there is no blemish in you. Now, this language in chapter 7 language is very explicit. Our English translations cannot use the words that are being described here. Because you don't want to be known as a Bible that used genitalial terms. In you, What would that Bible be called? You know what it would be called. So our translators, not in a prudish way, they don't render some of these words what they are. But he's describing some very intimate parts of her as she is going to be describing some very intimate parts of him. But see the bigger picture. Eyes, hair, teeth, lips, mouth, neck. It's an appearance um, were you attracted to your husband or wife when you first started hanging out? I hope you were. I hope you were. It's natural. It's not bad. Don't let the world teach you theology. It's not bad. So this attraction, now, will that attraction sustain a marriage relationship? Nope. That's why pornography is so rampant. Because it's insatiable. A satiated sexual intimacy requires God's lanes not the world's lanes, which again is where the Christian, not unlike the ancient Near Eastern culture, has a different view on these things. But the altogether beautiful is the, is the summary conclusion. Now, let's look at how the bride, or if she was uh, engaged this time again, don't split hairs on the timing. That's at the point of the record. It's a poetic expression of how she explains her husband. Chapter 5, verse 10, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy. I guess it was kind of sanctified Hebrew dirty talk. I don't know. <laughs> Dazzling and ruddy. Outstanding among 10,000. Now, where does she start? His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates. So evidently he's got curly, dark hair. In fact, the next phrase, and black as a raven. And what do women always want? A tall, dark, and handsome man, right? And that's sort of the cliche that's tossed around. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk. They're clear, they're beautiful, they're compelling, they're deep to look. You remember when you were dating, how you looked in your spouse, your, your girlfriend, boyfriend's eyes, you just stared in their eyes. It's like intoxicating, just looking at their eyes. So he's explaining it. Verse 13, his cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with myrrh. And I've always thought here, I guess he was drooling about then, I don't know. <laughs> His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. We can't put the actual words in there. It's not talking about a six-pack. I'll leave it at that. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem, eat your heart out. So you have, just, these are just two of many, the poetic songs about the beauty of the wife, the bride-to-be, the wife, the bride-to-be, the beauty, the handsome stature of the husband, the husband-to-be, the king. And notice that both have a focus on physical attraction, but what I find interesting is um, later on in this uh, last passage, this is my beloved, this is my friend. I think that is very interesting that the woman talks about her husband. That's my friend. He's my friend. She's altogether lovely to him, but she, that's my friend. We're on that relationship. And I often tell people, uh, when, when Cindy and I 
counsel or encourage or work with young married couples. I say, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm going to do nothing, I want to do nothing with Cindy. She's my friend. She's the one person on the planet with whom I can be naked and not ashamed. I know all her secrets. She knows all mine. I know all her failings. She knows all mine. And yet, two sinners choosing to live together in God's design, and she's the only one for me. And I'm the only one for her, unless one of us dies. Um, the cryptic line I want us to look at in, in concluding is in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And this is the last strophe of a longer verse. But this, to me, is one of those beautiful phrases which fits with the wisdom literature of Solomon so well. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. It's a beautiful picture. It's back to Genesis 2.25, naked and not ashamed. This is God's estimation. It's his view of these two lovers who've talked about themselves in this beautiful song, poem, uh, canticles, allegory, if you want to use those words. You can use whatever you want. My, my point simply is God looks down on this and goes, that's what I designed. Enjoy it. Which sounds like Ecclesiastes, right? Enjoy the stuff of life. We're fallen, broken creatures in a fallen, broken world. We're selfish, we're sinful, we're uh, prideful, we look out for number one, we're manipulative, all the things we all are if we're, if we're honest and transparent. There's one person on the planet that God designed. Once you're married, that's the person you're, you're stuck with or you're glued to, however you look at it. Uh, Cindy is the only woman on the planet that I could be naked and not ashamed with. She's the only one on the planet that I can have sexual intimacy that is God-sanctioned and ordained. Your husband, your wife, is the only person on the planet that God has designed that for. It's a beautiful thing. And, you know, as, as the Puritans, uh, perhaps uncharacteristically, were kind of, you know, puritanical. Uh, some of you are old enough to know the, you know, uh, Grin and Barrett aspect of sexual intimacy. What a tra tragedy of a gift of God. Uh, some great resources on these books. Ed Wheat's old, old book, Sexual Intimacy and Marriage. Uh, Bob Glan and uh, uh, Sandra, Sarah Glan and uh, Bill Couture. Some of you know Bill Couture, a Vanderbilt uh, pediatric physician. His father, Bill Couture, is a friend of Cindy's mind with the Lord now. His father uh, was a, a medical doctor that taught on sexual intimacy. He was a fertility specialist for many years. And then he had this chair uh, at um, Southern where he taught on bioethics and sexual intimacy and marriage and seminars. And he and Sandy Glahn put together a book called Sexual Intimacy and Marriage. It's a big book. So you have a, a man and a woman's perspective, a medical perspective. They're great resources talking about this gift of God that God gave us, and as Christians, we need to appreciate and evaluate the way it was intended. And I, I want to close with a prayer, but one thing I want to say about the, the confusion of our culture today with sexual identification, and um, I'm not mad. I'm, I'm mad when they impose it on children. I'm mad when they impose it in school systems. It makes me unhappy and sad. We're in a sick culture that needs Christ. The solution to this is not getting all mad screaming. You know, the solution is the gospel. Um, I just listened this weekend, uh, Rosaria Butterfield gave a presentation, it's all long, about an hour and 20 minutes, but she talks about the need for repentance. That's where she comes from, and she can say that as a former lesbian, who can say, you know what, we don't need to uh, you know, get all involved. People, people need to repent, repent of your sin. And it's not loving, she says, to not call someone to repentance. Now we're doing it in a dicey culture. But this is where I all, you've heard me say this before. Can you smile at the future? 
Can you, can you be brave and courageous and trust Christ and smile at the future? And just because everybody else says a certain thing doesn't mean it's true. You have to be angry about it. You have to pick up stones. You have to get all you're righteous and, you know, you're, you're wrong and so forth and so on. And there are lots of resources that are helpful. But at the end of the day, you and I live in a sphere of influence. And are we, are we Christ-like? Are we kind? Are we loving to people that have different opinions, that may be living in sin, that are confused? And that applies way beyond just gender. That applies in all kinds of areas of life, right? This is not some special sacred sin that is more egregious than the others. It's just right now it's in our face. And it takes us all the way back to ancient Near East where except the Israelite, they did whatever they wanted to do. They sanctified it as a way of worshiping their gods. So immorality and prostitution was part of a religious occult system. It's very appealing, but it will always leave lacking. And the beautiful part of a God-ordained relationship is that done in God's way, it's not prohibitive. Done in God's measure, it's free. And as a husband and wife, you've been given this gift. It's a wonderful gift. And for those of us who are single or have lost a mate or divorced or in between or may never marry, uh, there are ways to live beyond just sexual intimacy. It is part of a fallen and broken system in which we all live with different handicaps. 